Hello, and welcome to the Interimang Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Simon. Thank you for being with me today, and thanks for listening. We've got a great show for you, but first, let's catch up on some of the news you may have missed this week. Western's new sexual and gender-based violence committee co-chairs are looking to change the university's reputation for party culture, with hopes of making campus a safer place. Western University President Alan Shepard appointed Terry McQuid and Natalie Wathen to lead the committee. Both McQuid and Wathen emphasized the need to address growing concerns that the university's culture leaves students vulnerable to sexual and gender-based violence. The committee co-chair said they will seek out students' perspectives and recommendations to understand what needs to be done to change Western's party culture. The committee is hoping to present actionable recommendations to Western's administration by spring. And the committee is also calling on community members that may have relevant research data and publications to share them with the task force. And the Ignite Career Conference Your Next Normal is coming back to Fanshawe. The annual student career and leadership conference will take place from November 3rd to the 6th, with different keynote speakers each day. The conference will allow students to participate in workshops, ask questions to employers, and expand their professional networks. It will be held virtually to allow students to work around their personal schedules so students can log on when they have time in their busy days. The keynote speakers this year are Randall Ajit, the first poet laureate in Ontario on November 3rd, Suzanne Aguilark, an award-winning Inuit artist on November 5th, and Ganella Massa, the first hijab-wearing TV news reporter in Canada on November the 6th. And on October the 20th, Fanshawe Student Union President Ricardo Souza announced the winners of the FSU by-elections. Four vacant director seats were up for the grabs, while 10 candidates veed for the positions over the course of a week-long campaign. Candidates uploaded speeches and personal bios to the FSU website and campaigned across campus through posters and social media. After all the votes were tallied, Sosa revealed that the four new FSU directors will be fourth-year Bachelor of Commerce Digital Marketing student Caddy DeKelver, Baking and Pastry Arts Management student and FSU class representative Barbara Berger, Business Management student Anna Nelson, and Supply Chain Management and Logistics graduate student Parkar Kapoor. Nearly 1,100 students voted in the by-elections, which was held via Fanshawe Online from October the 18th to the 20th, ending at 2 p.m. The margin of votes between the fourth-place candidate and the fifth-place candidate were just by 11. Now, this week's podcast is something different and new we're trying out here at the Interrobang. It's a new history segment called Proofline. And yes, for all those Londoners who guessed it, that's what Richmond Street was historically called. Well, I think phonetically it sounds a little like through line, a common term used to draw the line from the past. If you haven't guessed it already, this is a segment all about history, historical tales and stories that circle around London and surrounding areas. So as we start off this big leap into some stories you may have never even heard before, I think it's only appropriate to tell you about something as equally big being Jumbo the Elephant. A big staple in the city of St. Thomas and for other cities as well, considering he was a member of P.T. Barnum's greatest show on earth. So I think this is a story worth telling. And while I can sit here and tell you all there is to know about the tale of Jumbo, no one could tell this story better than Steve Peters. Steve's a member of city council here in St. Thomas and was the city's mayor in 1991, the youngest mayor in the country at the time. But he's also an historian who's dedicated so much of his life to learn about Jumbo the elephant. So Steve, why don't you tell us? Who exactly was Jumbo the Elephant? Well, I, I'm going to start with this comment in that anytime I talk about Jumbo, it, it, it brings up a lot of controversy. And, and mainly because uh, we've learned a lot about elephants and we've learned that elephants shouldn't be part of a circus. Elephants really should not be part of captivity. 
in any way, shape, or form. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a tender subject with a lot of people. So I, I've, I've always been sort of cautious of, of how I tell the story and having to get the point across that that was then and this is now. And, and the way things were approached, you know, 135 years ago, you know, we look at things through a bit of a different lens. You know, the, this very spot where we sit and record from right now you know, I had David Suzuki here at the house who was doing a story on, on Jumbo for one of his nature thing shows. And, and we had a good chat about, you know, just how people's attitudes have changed towards animals in captivity and that, you know, the approach that we take today is, 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 is a lot different. And so I always, I sort of qualify my, my comments uh, in, in that regard and that we need to remember that the times were different. As far as Jumbo was concerned, Jumbo was born in Africa. We're not sure exactly where. Um, we think it might have been Ethiopia, but he was captured at a very young age. There was quite a trade in live animals. There was quite an interest in Europe that was the development of zoos in Europe at the time. And, and Jumbo was captured by some elf, by animal traders and was taken to the Paris Zoo. We, we believe Jumbo was born about 1861, and he arrived in the Paris Zoo not too long afterwards, and he was not really a big attraction. And I think the other thing to remember about uh, elephants in captivity is that predominantly elephants in captivity have been Asian elephants. An Asian elephant is a much easier elephant to train and, and to sort of domesticate versus an African elephant. The African elephant has and continues to retain more of its sort of wild side. And so Jumbo uh, arrived in the, in the Paris Zoo. We don't know if he was named Jumbo at the time. And uh, he spent, uh, he was in, in the Paris Zoo until 1865. And then in 1865, Jumbo was traded for a rhinoceros and left the Paris Zoo and went to the London Zoological Gardens. I'm just going to stop a little bit and, and just uh, comment on sort of the origin of the name Jumbo, because we, we, we really don't know. We, you know, certainly in, in today's vocabulary, it's become synonymous with anything big. You know, you Jumbo Jet, Jumbotron, Jumbo Hot Dog, and we can go on down the list of, and I think anybody today, even from St. Thomas, Jumbo Joe Thornton, our, you know, our famous local hockey player known as Jumbo Joe. And so it, it's become sort of attached with anything big. But the origin of the name is, is sort of a mystery. We, we know that um, through documentation that um, there was an, uh, a Hindu, an Indian Hindu god named Numbo Jumbo. And uh, Numbo Jumbo, when you see images of Numbo Jumbo, is, is shown as a, this Hindu, Hindu god as a very large figure, a figure towering over anyone else around him. And, and, and those images first start to appear in the, in the 1720s. As far as uh, Jumbo is concerned, the, the first reference to the word Jumbo appears in the Oxford Dictionary in 1820. And it's, it's described as something that is clumsy, um, which may very well have meant uh, what, uh, what Jumbo was uh, later on. So the, there's the origins of the name are sort of uh, clouded in history, but it appears, though, that the name was around longer than Jumbo was. So Jumbo arrives at the London Zoo in 1865, and he's just really this scrawny little runt. There's these images of Jumbo, the, this small elephant, and immediately after his arrival, Jumbo's put in charge of a, of, a, of a keeper by the name of Matthew Scott. And Matthew Scott 
virtually spends the rest of his own life with Jumbo. He's he's with Jumbo from 1865 until Jumbo's death in 18 in, in 1885. And Matthew Scott was assigned as Jumbo's keeper. And Matthew Scott, you know, we we hear a lot about dog whispers. In, in some ways, Matthew Scott may very well have been an early form of an animal whisperer because um, Jumbo and, and Matthew Scott had this really unique bond of friendship. Even years later, when they traveled in the circus, Scott and Jumbo lived together. Jumbo had a special train car that he, he traveled in, and, and Matthew Scott slept in a bunk with, with Jumbo. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to a little more to Matthew Scott, but uh, there was this really unique bond with the two. Well, Jumbo was at the London Zoo, he, uh, he really started to grow. And uh, part of that they attribute to Jumbo had a real sweet tooth and he, he liked sweet buns. Jumbo also um, is, was known to indulge in a little bit of alcohol as well, too. And I kind of find it fitting that we have a local brewery here in St. Thomas Railway City that has a dead, jump, a dead elephant beer and also a Jumbo beer now, too, that they've recently introduced. But Jumbo sort of um, took a liking to sweets and, uh, and alcohol. Well, at the London Zoo. He just, he grew and he grew and he grew. And he was a favorite of uh, the patrons of the London Zoo. Um, he was a, a very uh, calm elephant, very docile elephant. Um, he had no issues of, of individuals riding on his back. And you can see the image behind me here of Jumbo in the London Zoo um, with, uh, with, with children on his back. And Jumbo really loved children as well. But Jumbo, um, as Jumbo grew, Jumbo started to mature. And Jumbo was entering a, a stage in his life about uh, 1881, where um, puberty might be the best way to describe what Jumbo was entering. And he came down with what they call mutzt in, in an elephant. And uh, you know what? He, his, his hormones were working. And uh, he was becoming a little unreliable. He wasn't as uh, docile. Um, he was very violent in his, uh, in his quarters. He was known to, to smash the doors. One of the interesting things about Jumbo is that um, Jumbo never had tusks. He was always breaking his tusks off. The, the monument in St. Thomas is a little bit of a, a, an exaggeration, um, something right along P.T. Barnum's uh, liking. But uh, Jumbo um, didn't enjoy his tusks, and he was constantly breaking them off. And in 1881, the London Zoo was in a, in a real dilemma as to what they were going to do with him. So along comes P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum had been a, a, a regular visitor of the London Zoo. Every time Barnum was in, in, in London, England, uh, Barnum would visit the zoo and uh, you know, try and look for, for new and in interesting acquisitions. And I think Jumbo caught uh, Barnum's eye very early on. And in the fall of 1881, Barnum uh, reached out to the London Zoo, I think maybe perhaps on a whim, perhaps he had heard some of the rumors about Jumbo's uh, changes in life. And uh, Barnum started to make inquiries with the London Zoo as to whether they would be interested in selling Jumbo. And much to P.T. Barnum's surprise, the London Zoo agreed to sell him the elephant. The deal was very clear, $10,000, and you are 100% responsible for transporting Jumbo to America. And Barnum took up the challenge. 
there was a huge uproar in England. I, I think something I, I liken it to the days that Wayne Gretzky got traded from the Edmonton Oilers, that there was this huge uproar of you, you can't do this. You know, the, he belongs to us. And Queen Victoria's children had written on Jumbo's back. Winston Churchill had written on Jumbo. And there was this huge uproar. Even the, the, the Parliament of, of the United Kingdom got involved as to how to stop this sale of Jumbo the Elephant. And the other part of it was, and this sort of comes back to the uh, elephant whisperer and Matthew Scott, Jumbo wouldn't leave. They, they built this large traveling container for Jumbo the Elephant and he wouldn't enter it. And Jumbo would just lie down and, and not move. And so for a couple months after the sale was announced, they, they could not get Jumbo to leave, could not get Jumbo to move. And Barnum the, at the time said, the agent said, Jumbo will not stir. What should I do? Barnum replied back, let him lie there as long as he wants to, because this, this was building all this publicity for Jumbo's uh, arrival in, uh, in, in the United States that Barnum knew a, a good thing. So, you know, all in, it cost Barnum about $30,000. Eventually, in, in April of 1882, Jumbo was uh, shipped to the United States. And uh, it cost about $30,000 to ship Jumbo. And within a few days of Jumbo's arrival in the U.S., Barnum had recouped all his costs. Jumbo made P.T. Barnum a lot of money. Uh, the other interesting thing was, was that uh, there was a lot of concern expressed in England about Jumbo's wife. There was a, a female African elephant that uh, was at the zoo. Her name was Alice. And uh, everybody kept talking about, you know, Jumbo and his wife and that they were, you know, separating the two. And, you know, there's an account at the time that uh, talking about Alice that, that they described her as that they hard, the two of them hardly ever met and were not even very good friends. But people painted the story of, you know, Jumbo being taken, taken away from his scorned lover. And there's even a, a really cool poem written at the time that says, it's called Jumbo and Alice. Jumbo said to Alice, I love you. Alice said to Jumbo, I don't think you do. For if you really love me, as you say you do, you'd never go to Yankee land and leave me in the zoo. And uh, that was a, a popular children's poem at the time. But, uh, but Jumbo did go to Yankee land. Jumbo left the zoo and he arrived in, in New York City to a huge fanfare, paraded up Broadway and, uh, and unveiled at Madison Square Garden in, in April of 1882. And I guess Jumbo really never, never looked back. At the time, uh, most circuses were, were in large venues. But Barnum was sort of a pioneer of, of the tented circus, the, tent, the circus that we, we come to think of as today. And uh, Barnum was another pioneer of, of moving the circus by train. So Jumbo had a special rail car constructed for him. It was called the Jumbo Palace Car. And as I said, Matthew Scott lived with him. And Jumbo was uh, the feature of the circus. In all the advertising of the circus through the 1880s, and the primary feature was Jumbo the Elephant. And Jumbo was the bill for, for the circus. And Jumbo, uh, Jumbo first visited St. Thomas in 1883 with the circus. Um, it was an uneventful event. The circus, they did their customary thing. They had their circus parade down the main street. And 
you know, circuses of the day where it was a school holiday. Kids, children were, were let out of school to, to go and attend the circus. And it was, it was a, this, when the circus came to town, it was a really big event. But the fateful night for Jumbo was his second visit to St. Thomas. And that was on the 15th of September, 1885. And I'll take you back to that night. There were two elephants that were walking down the tracks, and you need to remember that one track had the line of boxcars for the circus train, and the other track was kept open for movement of freight trains. But the circus had been told not to worry. There were no freight trains scheduled during the time that they would be loading up after the circus. So they were leaving St. Thomas and going to London for a performance the next day. Matthew Scott was walking Jumbo down the railway tracks going westward, along with a small dwarf elephant by the name of Tom Thumb. So Jumbo, Tom Thumb, and Matthew Scott are all walking along the railway tracks when, lo and behold, an unscheduled freight train starts to approach. And you need to remember that these are in the days that trains didn't have bright lights and signals like they do today. And more importantly, they didn't have the braking systems like we do now. So the freight train, number 88 under the engineership of Billy Burnett, was proceeding westbound into St. Thomas, unbeknownst of the large elephant, small elephant, and trainer who were walking along the tracks. As they started to get closer, Billy Burnett, the engineer, noticed the elephants on the track when he caught the shadow of Jumbo in the distance. And all Burnett could do was whistle for the brakes. So he whistles, the brakes are burning up and sparks are flying, just trying to slow the train down. And Jumbo was only told to run. Jumbo can't go to his left because there's a line of boxcars, and he can't go to his right because there's a huge ditch. So all Jumbo could do was keep running straight. First and foremost, however, the little elephant Tom Thumb gets hit and he's thrown into the ditch and he ends up with a broken leg, but Jumbo keeps on running. And the train, unfortunately, hit Jumbo in the rear and sadly his head is forced into the tracks with one of his tucks piercing his brain. He passed away about half an hour later with his trunk still wrapped around his only trainer, Matthew Scott. It must have been quite a sight to see, and P.T. Barnum, ever the exploiter of any incident, later on changed the story to say that Jumbo saw this iron horse coming down the tracks, and he saved his little friend Tom Thumb by picking him up with his trunk and throwing him into the ditch and charged the train head-on, knocking it off his tracks. And while the train did get knocked off its tracks, it wasn't in the way that Barnum had described. And Matthew Scott, he weeped like a baby. Even when you look at some of the old photographs that were taken the day after Jumbo died, you can see the sadness in his eyes. There are kids in the background smiling around the elephant, but Matthew didn't. It was undeniable the connection the two of them had. But Steve, as we go back to you, how would you describe this connection? Well, I think one of the things was is that Matthew Scott was not threatened by Jumbo. You know, there's a lot of horror stories of elephants and how they're treated in zoos and in circuses, you know, the, what they call the bull hook. And, and Scott treated Jumbo in, in, a, in a very different way. Scott also convinced the, the management of the, of the zoo that this was a special attraction and that, you know, where a lot of animals may not have had the best of quarters, the best of food, Jumbo had the best of the best. They actually built a, a special elephant house for Jumbo in 1869, Jumbo never was deprived uh, in any way of, of food or treats. As well, you know, Scott made a little money on the side of Jumbo with, uh, you know, by, I think, pocketing a few dollars. But uh, he also allowed Jumbo to, to enjoy these, these treats that the children would bring, you know, the, the, the buns and the biscuits and 
even other things that Jumbo probably ate uh, inadvertently. There's the, the local museum has a number of items that were, were found in Jumbo's stomach after his death that coins and little carved, uh, carved trinkets and things that um, Jumbo was obviously consuming other things. Scott was not married. Scott had no family. And it was, it was like a brother. I, I don't know. I look at it in a lot of ways. It was a brother to brother relationship, an, an odd relationship. But, but it, it, it was one of, um, of mutual respect for one another. And, and that's where I go back to where Jumbo wouldn't leave. I think Scott, Scott realized that he was made because the crowds that were showing up at the London Zoo to get this final ride on Jumbo, I think Scott was probably making a fair, fair chunk of money on the side. And, uh, but it wasn't money. It was, it was just a, an uncanny early human to animal relationship and you know maybe in a lot of ways how we are attracted to dogs and cats uh, today wow and yeah that was something i wanted to to talk about as well with was what matthew scott did after the fact because i i know with the the circus like you said they they kind of moved on they had to go to the next thing but i didn't know that he kind of stayed and oversee that process that's pretty interesting and i, I guess it goes to what we talked about before with him, you know, that kind of odd brother relationship, it, it kind of just highlights that connection the two of them had. Very, very much so. You know, like Scott was grieving, you know, here yet you had spent 20 years of your life with the, the largest elephant in the world, you know, and he, just on that point there, um, Barnum would never allow Jumbo to be measured. And, you know, Jumbo's height goes anywhere from 10 feet, seven inches to 13 feet, one inches. Um, and his weight is all over the board, but sort of the, the common accepted fact is his jumbo weighed about seven imperial tons and, and was about 11 and a half feet high. So jumbo was, was big. The other interesting thing about jumbo was jumbo was what called a four-toed African elephant. Most African elephants are three toes in the front, four in the back. Jumbo was a three-toed African elephant, three in the front, three in the back, which was kind of unusual. But after Jumbo died, Barnum had made arrangements with a, a taxidermist by the name of Henry Ward from Rochester, New York, to um, preserve Jumbo. The, the circus had its like sideshow always, and there was a lot of stuffed animals in the sideshow. And, and Barnum recognized, the, in, and actually had recognized many years before, he had, he had uh, written to Ward saying, look, you've goodness forbid, if something wherever it happened to Jumbo, I need you to be summoned immediately. And Ward was summoned immediately. He, um, he arrived uh, the next day from, from Rochester, New York, and engaged a, a group of local butchers to oversee the beginning of the taxidermy process of Jumbo. Again, Scott overseeing every, every bit of this. I like to say that one of the butchers that was there that day was a uh, butcher by the name of Peter Peters. I wish he was related to me, but he's not. But, uh, but Peter Peters was one of the butchers. Another one of the butchers described the process of um, the taxidermy work of understanding what Jonas felt like when he was inside the whale. Because this was one mammoth task. Because, you know, very soon after the accident, the, the, the locomotive had been derailed. Its bell knocked off. And this elephant was lying on the tracks. So they had to bring in this, this gang of railway crew to, to roll Jumbo off the tracks and, and they rolled him off the tracks. And then the next day, Ward began his process of the taxidermy where the skin was removed, 
the bones were removed, and then they had um, Jumbo was cremated. Kind of ironic in some ways that Jumbo was cremated because Billy Burnup, the engineer that killed Jumbo, Burnup uh, later died in 1906 in the great earthquake of San Francisco. And when they recovered his body, they sent it back to St. Thomas, but they sent him back to St. Thomas cremated. And Billy Burnup ended up becoming the first cremated remains interred in St. Thomas. So not only was Jumbo cremated here in St. Thomas, but uh, Burnup was later in 1906. And then um, Ward oversaw this process. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the skin was pickled uh, by a local uh, a packing company and the bones were, were moved and the remains of Jumbo were shipped to Rochester, New York to, um, to Ward's taxidermy studio where Jumbo was then stuffed and his bones were mounted. And for another couple of years, um, the stuffed Jumbo and the, the Jumbo skeleton traveled with the circus. And uh, as in life, Jumbo and death continued to make Barnum a great deal of money. In time, P.T. Barnum donated the stuffed Jumbo to Tufts University, which is located in Ma uh, Medford, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, some, uh, an institution that was special to Barnum. And Tufts adopted Jumbo as their mascot, much like we have the, the Western Mustangs or the Fanshawe Falcons of today. It's still today, they're known as the Tufts Jumbos. And the, the stuffed Jumbo survived until 1975 when it was... Um, was destroyed by a fire. The bones are still in existence. The bones still exist. They're in the Museum of Natural History in New York City. They were last displayed in 1993, but they were taken out for, um, for examination about three years ago um, on a show that David Suzuki did, and as well Sir David Attenborough from the BBC was involved in, of looking at, um, at, at Jumbo, and they re-examined the bones. So the bones still exist. Unfortunately, stuff Jumbo does not there are some remains of Jumbo's tusk. I own a piece in my collection, which is right now stored out at the Elgin County Museum. So in death as in life, Jumbo um, still continued to draw attention to him. Scott himself, he was never the same after Jumbo died. He, um, he, died, a, he died a pauper. He lived until about 1918. He died a pauper in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is P.T. Barnum's hometown, buried in the same cemetery as P.T. Barnum, but in, um, in an unmarked grave. The, there's stories of Scott spending his final days and conversing, so to speak, with, with his long-lost friend Jumbo, but Scott was never the same. It, it, it changed him afterward. But going back to the death of Jumbo and the tragedy that it is, to maybe cover your interest as well as my own, I want to dive more into who Jumbo was. So we go now to Megan Pickersgill, a representative from Railway City Tourism down in St. Thomas. Well, Jumbo may have been the largest elephant in captivity, and we've referenced the topic of the horrible treatment elephants did face while in captivity. What I found was that Jumbo was actually treated quite well and with an extensive diet, and one that included whiskey. Yeah, that's that's what I've read as, as well. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm not sure how much whiskey they gave him, uh, but yeah, that's that's something that that was done to keep him calm, especially on the voyage um, across the ocean. That's very distressing for for humans and animals alike. But um, and it was on a boat, so I know that they did that to actually keep him calm. Beyond that, I don't know if they if they used whiskey in other ways, but uh, yeah. So yeah, you heard that right. 
This enormous elephant was drinking whiskey as a means to calm him down, Steve even explaining to me the very same thing. But as we wrap up the enormous tale of Jumbo the Elephant, pun intended, what should we take away from his story, Megan? Me personally, my the main takeaway that I like to see is just, you know, understanding his story in a, in a deeper way than just this is a giant elephant on the side of the road kind of thing. It's like, yes, it is, but why? And understanding that story, understanding what he went through, um, that maybe it wasn't an easy life and it, and it did end tragically, but the impact that he had culturally on like the entire world was huge. And, and, and how his story has persisted for over a hundred years now. And, you know, I think that it's, it's a story worth telling. And that's, that's, that's what I'd like people to take away is just understanding about his life, I guess. And what about you, Steve? What do you think we should take away from Jumbo the Elephant? You know, I think there were a lot of stories that probably came out about Jumbo, you know, whether it was Jumbo charging the train to save the elephant or, you know, Barnum putting a a huge insurance price on his head. Uh, You know, the stories of Jumbo uh, having tuberculosis, Jumbo being an alcoholic. I think the one interesting thing that, that I noted in watching both Suzuki's and Attenborough's shows were the, um, the damage to Jumbo's bones and his legs. And, you know, the, the elephant, you know, climbing up and down into a, into a car and being paraded around like he was, that was cruelty. That was animal cruelty. You know, it, it was interesting. I, uh, I went with some friends to the, the last, the, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus made a conscious decision about five years ago that they were no longer going to keep elephants in their show. And elephants were released. There's a, a huge animal elephant preserve in Kentucky. And these animals are living out their life there. And I, I remember I was at the very, very last show with elephants in the circus. And as important as that was, was to, to end it, it was the end of an era. You know, the, the first elephant actually appeared in St. Thomas in 1833 in a circus. You know, elephants had been part of a circus for a long time. They were they were a unique animal, an animal that most people would never have a chance to see in their lives. And, you know, I, I think if, if I gained anything from listening to David Suzuki and David Attenborough was that we have changed in society and we have changed at how we, we view how we treat animals. And, you know, and as I said in the beginning to and, and say now that what we know now versus what we know then is, 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 is totally different. And you know, there can be all kinds of theories of Jumbo's death. Was he mistreated? Probably mistreated from the standpoint of just the wear and tear on his body traveling with the circus. But I don't think he was mistreated by Matthew Scott. I don't think he was treated mistreated by P.T. Barnum. If P.T. Barnum mistreated Jumbo in any way, it was the exploitation of is how much money he could make off of Jumbo. But I don't sense that Barnum was that foolish to that he would engineer Jumbo's death because Jumbo was a cash elephant to Barnum. And I, you know, to, to try and engineer Jumbo's demise, you know, would have hit someplace near and dear to P.T. Barnum. And that was his pocketbook. And so I, I just think it was a tragic day, a tragic set of circumstances that took place. And, uh, you know, had uh, Jumbo not been killed in St. Thomas, we wouldn't be having this discussion I wouldn't have had my lifelong interest in Jumbo the Elephant and my fascination of collecting 
everything jumbo and finding as much jumbo trivia as possible. You know, a fun one when you're doing your illustrations, take the map of Ontario and turn the map of Ontario with Windsor to the north. And the southwestern Ontario then will look like an elephant. Tusk is, uh, here, I'm going to just, I've, I've got to show this to you. So if you look at southwestern Ontario to Windsor, you can see it's tusk. One leg goes down on the Niagara Peninsula. His back is the lake here on shore. His tail is Tobamori. And we won't say what part of the anatomy Owen Sound is. But <laughs> Jumbo's heart is in St. Thomas. Oh, my God. I've... Isn't, isn't that? It's just. That's I, I like incredible. Say, <laughs> I, I, I like to say we, um, you know, we, we think of Jumbo, but. You know, we need to remember our earlier history, too, and that we've had Indigenous peoples living in this area for over 10,000 years. And in that 10,000 years, in those early years, we had mastodons that were roaming around here. We've, there's mastodon remains that have been found all over southern Ontario. So the elephant being in St. Thomas, the elephant in southwestern Ontario wasn't unique. They've been here for, for 10,000 years. But anyway... I have this huge fascination with Jumbo. I, I will continue to. I will continue to collect about Jumbo to preserve his memory and, you know, tell the stories about Jumbo. But but as well, I think with the context, as, as we talked about, of saying that was then and this is now. And the way we treat animals in, in zoos and, and in captivity needs to be looked at differently than we ever did in the past. To mark the 100th anniversary of Jumbo, a large monument was erected at the west end of St. Thomas. Much in the line of P.T. Barnum, what the sculptor brought them was larger than life. It's about 10% larger than Jumbo actually was, and there's a few errors on it as Steve talked about earlier. For instance, Jumbo never had tusks, but the monument displays some pretty evident ones. The elephant at the west end has five toenails on it, and there's no elephant ever in existence to have had five toenails. The other thing is that people will often say, well, why does Jumbo's rear end greet you as you drive into St. Thomas? And it is quite the welcome, but in the Hindu tradition, elephants bring you the best of luck when they faced east, hence why Jumbo faces the east today. He continues to be a huge tourist attraction. People come from all over day and night, and you can see people at the Jumbo Monument every day. It's even become part of how they celebrate in the community to see Jumbo. For instance, in the last months to celebrate Pride Week in St. Thomas, Jumbo was lit in Pride colors to mark these special days in the community. They have local entrepreneurs that sell Jumbo sweatshirts. They have a brewery that produces a couple different brands of beer that are all related to Jumbo and his own love of alcohol, as we mentioned earlier. And the name continues to live on in our vocabulary. Like Steve talked about before, whether it's Jumbo Joe the hockey player, or the Jumbotron at the Rogers Center in Toronto, or the days where we can get back on a plane and ride a Jumbo jet, or go to a hockey game and eat a Jumbo hot dog. That name is synonymous with something big. And you know, Jumbo was big, and will continue to be big, and will continue to be a popular attraction for St. Thomas down the road. And you know, like the phrase goes, a good elephant never forgets. And I don't think I'm ever going to forget, nor is the community of St. Thomas ever going to forget the life and legacy of Jumbo the Elephant. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Interrobang podcast. You can catch up with every episode on Google Play, Apple Music, and Spotify. Make sure you subscribe to our newsletter to keep up with all things Fanshawe.